We're going to start with a trigger warning. Today's episode contains graphic descriptions of violent assault and suicide. Bad boys, bad boys, what are you going to do? Well, I had the opportunity twice in my life to find out what the cops would do while I was having mental health crises. I'm going to tell you the story of both of those crises, and I'm going to tell you how the police reacted in each situation. Welcome to Shattered the Podcast. Sharing the lived experience of mental illness on a father, a mother, a family. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. The worst day of my life was not the day that I was injured, although it was a very, very bad day. I was working with people with disability and acquired brain injury, and I'd suffered a lot of assaults in my career. I was a behavioral modification specialist. So I was brought in when clients had unmanageable behaviors, violence and negative behaviors. I was brought in to try and learn how to communicate with those clients better and to give them communication skills so that they could respond better and communicate better. It was a difficult job, but it was a violent job. I worked in a house that was extremely violent. I was supposed to go and work in senior management and that was put on hold because I was requested to go into a house where the turnover of staff had been incredible. Uh, They'd lost one staff member a week for something like eight weeks in a row. And when you've got a team of six people, uh, that's a lot of turnover in a very small house. I was brought into this situation to retrain the staff uh, and bring in security measures. I'd only been there for a couple of days when I was attacked by a client with a kitchen knife. Now, the client should never have been able to have a kitchen knife unless he was cooking. He was supposed to have the knives locked away securely uh, at times that he wasn't cooking and it was supposed to only have the knives during with staff um, oversight. So for this client to have a knife was, uh, uh wrong, bad, terrible. Now the house was in, uh, a temporary accommodation, their main house, their, their permanent house was being refurbished. It was being made more secure so that staff could be safe. The long and the short of it was that this house was not safe. It was not safe in any way, shape or form. Clients should not have been housed there. Staff should not have been expected to work with clients in that house. At the beginning of my shift and without warning, I was attacked. A guy came after me with a knife, one of the knives that he'd been using with the previous staff member and a knife that should have been locked away. I can't go into the details of the assault. Uh, it's just too, I just, I just can't. Uh, but I'm going to tell you the story of the aftermath. Now, the problem happened. The, the problem was that the incident happened during the Melbourne Cup race in 2006. Now, if you're not in Australia, the race that stops a nation truly stops a nation. If you go into any shop, or place of business while the Melbourne Cup race is on, you are 90% assured that nobody will be there to serve you because they'll be watching a stupid horse race. It's 
I don't know. It's become an Australian thing. It's one of the things I, I hate. I hate Melbourne Cup Day. Not just because of this incident, but very much so since this incident happened. So I'm being assaulted. The client's knocked down the security door. He's got a knife. I have a button around my neck that if I press it, it is like an emergency call button. And I'm supposed to get a call within 30 seconds uh, from this security company. Well, they estimated that I pressed this button about 15 or 16 times. And uh, because the people at the security company were watching a stupid horse race, they didn't see these alerts coming in. So I called nine, uh, triple zero uh, in America, 911. Um, in Australia, it's just uh, the emergency number to call. Called them and I was told later on that I sounded extremely calm. Now, the thing of it is a psychiatrist would tell me later that I was in shock. Uh, I was in shock from the assault and my calmness was my reset button of working with people with disabilities. So imagine this, you show up at work, somebody punches you in the face. How do you deal with that assault? How do you deal with that situation? What's the natural thing to do? You'd get angry. You'd respond, perhaps with violence. Perhaps you'd run away. Uh, perhaps you would um, just uh, scream. You know, every person's going to be different when they get punched in the face. But my job was to stay extremely calm and figure out why the client punched me and what steps I had to do to make sure everybody was safe. So you get punched in the face. My automatic reaction was, okay, why did this guy punch me in the face? Is everybody safe? Has the assault finished? Is there more punches coming? What's the demeanor of the client? Is he still upset? Has the punch released some endorphins that he needed to release? And now we can get on with whatever we need to get on with. And often these violent assaults would happen in the middle of uh, routines. So a client might be half-dressed. They might be soaking wet, having just jumped out of the shower. Now, I can't allow a client to sit on the floor soaking wet uh, after he's punched me. Uh, I can't afford to walk away and leave him in that situation or her. I have to be the one that cares for this person. They've just punched me in the face. I might be bleeding. I might be bruised. I might be hurt. But I am the staff member of the moment, and it's my job to the client through the rest of the routine. So I can't react with anger. I can't react with violence. And this was the way I'd trained myself to deal with violent situations. So in this time where I was violently assaulted by a client with the knife, my outward reaction was to be calm. So I called triple zero, the emergency police. And I said, um, I've got a situation here uh, a client has assaulted a staff member. I didn't say it was me. I was using the third person like I was writing a report or something. And I said, we urgently need police assistance. Now, as I said, this emergency call came during the Melbourne Cup race. The dispatcher told the cops that they'd gotten this call about, a, about an attack. They didn't mention the knife. They said, the gentleman there seems really calm. It's not that big a deal, uh, but you need to go. About 20 minutes later, 
the a police car pulls out, out up out the front, and I know this because I'm sitting out the front in the gutter. Police car shows up. There's no siren. There's no nothing. There's no sense of urgency. They never said, but I'm pretty certain that they finished watching the race before they came to see me. Uh, and I, I, you know, I, uh, given the nature of the information that they were giving, I can, uh, given, I can understand that, but forgiving it is a whole different story. Soon as they see me, lights go on, siren goes on, cops jump out of the car. One guy's asking me what's going on. They both run inside, guns drawn because they know that there's a potentially a, a, a client with a knife in the house. They arrest him. While they're doing that, about 10, maybe 15 other police cars show up. I don't know exactly how many, but I do know that the street completely filled up with police cars. These guys had jumped on the radio explain what they saw. We've got a guy, he's lying in the gutter, he's covered in blood, there's been a knife attack, we need backup. Now, the thing that makes me more suspicious about the fact that they were all watching the Melbourne Cup race is that many of these officers were in their dress uniforms. They had their medals, they had their fancy uniforms on. So they'd obviously come from their Melbourne Cup celebration. The young cops that went inside, first one comes out, asked me to explain what happened. He walks me through the house. I don't see the client because he's in handcuffs up the other end of the house. I am told that clearly an assault has happened. Everything that I've said is 100% correct. The client is being arrested. Uh, he's going to be taken down to the station. Uh, now we need to take care of you. It was at this stage that a more senior person, a person with a lot of braid on his uniform, on his formal uniform, came up to me and said uh, what had happened. The, the cop I was with told him. Then he said to me, okay, we've got a situation in that the client that we're trying to deal with is disabled and we can't communicate with him. Can you please come and help us? Now I assume that I'm going to go into a room with a couple of police officers with a client handcuffed behind his back. I'm going to instruct the officers in how to uh, talk to him and communicate with him, then I'm going to leave. Instead, I'm ushered into a room where he is not handcuffed. The cops are standing behind me outside the door. The client looks really, really calm. He's got a little bit of my blood on him, but not much. I have to kneel down in front of this client to tie up his shoes. I have to help this client put a jacket on. I have to uh, get him ready to go to the police station. The cops then say, can you help us get him to the paddy wagon, to the cop car? I take him down and I get him into the back of the car. I have to, 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 to tell him to get in in a way that he would understand. He starts freaking out. The senior cop says, can you get in there with him? Stupidly, I said yes. And I jumped in the back of the paddy wagon. So I'm locked in the back of the paddy wagon with the guy that's just assaulted me, covered in my blood. 
We get to the police station. They ask me to escort him to his cell. I do. Client asks for a glass of water. The cop says, yep, Mark will get you one in just a minute. And I did something at that time that I'd never done before in my working career. I told a client no for selfish reasons. And that's the first time that I'd done that. And that is probably the best decision that I made on that day because I started to distance myself from the trauma of this client by the simple act of just saying no to him. And when the cop said, come on, I said, you guys can do it. I'm not going to. I'm taken into the police uh, station outside the cells. I'm interviewed. They photographed my wounds. I don't know if anybody offered to get me to the hospital. I know that nobody offered to get me back to the house where I was working, where my car was. Uh, All I know is that I walked out the front of the station. I sat down in the gutter and I started crying. And I basically didn't stop crying for three days. What had happened is my mind had snapped. This incident was what psychiatrists later called the straw that broke the camel's back. I'd suffered assault after assault in the workplace, and I'd stood up to it stoically, and I'd ignored my mental health, and I hadn't spoken about the incidents that I'd been through because I was working with people with disabilities. I was, in a way, special. I was a person that could hack it. I'd done it for 18 years. I was a rare entity in that field in that I was somebody who had dealt with the worst of the worst and come out with it with no mental scars. Lots of physical scars, but I thought no mental scars. To this day, I don't know how I feel about those officers asking me to help that client. I honestly cannot go into it too deep without it starting to emotionally affect me. Thinking about the the degree to which the officers misunderstood the situation and made decisions that were harmful to my mental health. I was clearly in shock during this period. I should have been separated from the client. I should not have seen him again. And yet I had to escort him to the station sitting in the back of the locked paddy wagon. I don't know how much of my PTSD comes from that situation, from that part of the situation, but I spent the next 10 years in living hell because my mind was broken. It was shattered. It was pulled into a million different pieces because of this incident and because of the fact that I didn't pull myself away from this field of work. I should have stood up and said, hang on, I don't feel like I am mentally prepared to go into this new house. I know you think I'm a superstar and a lot of my uh, self-worth is built around how good I am at working with violent people with disabilities, but I should have been able to say, hang on, I am not ready. I, 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 I'm beyond it. I should have taken the promotion. I should have insisted that I not be put in that house. The day of this incident was not my worst day. 
My worst day was the day that I gave up hope. And my experience with the police on this day was extremely different. It was late at night. I had taken a lot of pills. I basically OD'd. I had uh, a sword, a replica sword, just for, just to have. Wasn't ever going to use it as a weapon, didn't see it as a weapon. Just saw it as a cool trophy that sat in the corner. On this night, in my drug-addled haze, I thought that the client with the knife had come back. He was there. He was waiting for me. I grabbed the sword and I raced outside the front door, screaming. I don't don't know what I was saying. Don't know what my wife said to me. I don't know. Raced outside and I'm slashing the air, assuming that that's where the client with the knife is hiding and he's come back to get me. Thankfully, I did not hurt anyone. Thankfully, I was absolutely out of my mind. The police were called. There was a lot of cars in the street that had stopped, that were watching me, that were aware that something really bad was happening. I fell to my knees, bawling, snot. Everything. I was just, I was in the midst of a psychotic episode. I thought I was about to die. Two police showed up. One of them, a woman, the more senior of the two, would be the one that I would interact the most with. The second cop, a younger cop, obviously taking his cue from the female cop acted very professionally. Apparently when they showed up, he circled around behind me and secured the sword, made sure that I was no longer armed. Now in Canberra and the city that I lived in at that time, the street light lights at nighttime are yellow. I don't know why. Apparently it helps with your night vision. I don't know. But even a child walking a dog looks dangerous in that yellow light. It looks threatening. It looks, uh, it's not a natural kind of, like you're walking down the street, you've got white lights, you see somebody, okay, you get, can get them. It, they, it looks hazy. Even when there's no fog, it still looks hazy because of this yellow light. The cops showed up. They found a guy with long hair, no shirt on screaming about somebody trying to kill him. If I was in the United States, I believe 100% I would be dead. The police would have taken one look at me and they would have shot. It's 11 o'clock at night. It's in this dank yellow haze. This guy is screaming. And he looks out of control. And while I'm not big, I look strong. These cops secured the weapon and then approached me. I was, I think I must have been aware that they were police there because I was asking them to shoot 
the guy with the knife. In my head, that's what I thought I was doing. And I, I found out later that I was telling them to shoot the guy with the weapon, but it was me. I was screaming at them to shoot me. They tried capsicum spray. Now, I have long hair. I had much longer hair at the time. And the hair was dangling in front of my eyes. So when they pepper sprayed me, the pepper actually, the capsicum spray didn't actually get to my eyes. Covered my hair and my body. I was washing pepper spray out of my hair two days later. In the shower, I looked down, there was still orange on the floor of the pepper spray being washed out of my hair. Unable to see, I flicked my hair out of my eyes, something that I did often. Uh, I swam a lot at the time, so flicking my hair back um, was just the way I did things. Now, two things happened when I flicked my hair back. One is the capsicum spray flicked off my hair and went into one of the eyes of one of the two officers. So technically, technically, I've just assaulted an officer because I flicked the pepper spray off my hair into his eyes. You've got a violent situation. It's late at night. You've got an angry, strong-looking man with long hair approaching you in the dark, screaming, kill me, and now you're hurt. Some of the pepper spray has gone back into your own eyes. I said two things happened when I uh, flicked my hair back and two things did happen. One, the officer got hurt and two, I got a full can of pepper spray in the face from the other officer. (laughs) Oh, mate, if you've ever been, if you've never been sprayed with capsicum spray with pepper spray, I cannot explain to you how debilitating and how painful it is. It is shocking. And as soon as I got a face full of capsicum spray, I was down. At that point, it had calmed me down enough to know that I was in a lot of trouble. I couldn't see anything, but for some reason I knew that they were police. Just in my mind, somehow I knew that they were cops. And I heard the word handcuffs. Now, I'm in a psychotic state anyway, and all of a sudden, somebody starts talking about handcuffs. Now, I get really, really claustrophobic. I cannot deal with my arms being restrained. I had to go and get a, like a CAT scan at a, at a hospital, and they had to put me in one of those tubes. Well, I couldn't do it. I could not sit still. My body was literally shaking with fear because of how trapped I felt. The idea of getting cuffs put on me almost sent me back into that completely psychotic state. I jammed my hands together in front of me and I said, please, please, please don't handcuff me behind my back. I remember the female officer, she grabbed my hands, she put them down and said, we're not going to need that. It's okay. Two things happened this night, which changed everything for me. The first is when I was lying in that 
ambulance covered in pepper spray thinking that I was either dying or going to jail. I realized that all I wanted to do was be at home with my wife. I did not want to be dead. Up until that moment, all I wanted was for my pain to stop. After I had pulled the trigger, so to speak, I realized that death was not what I wanted. I didn't want to be gone. I wanted to be with my wife. The second thing, and I truly believe that this saved my life, was this police officer. Her name was Kelly. She just sat beside me telling me that it was going to be okay. I don't know if it's real, but I believe at some stage somebody came up and was like, we're going to handcuff this guy, and it was going to happen. And I remember her, and this might not be a real memory, I remember her just saying, no, it's okay. Mark's okay. Now, the thing is, I don't know if she was in the ambulance with me on the way to the hospital, but I know that the ambo, the paramedic, kept trying to take OBS, my blood pressure, my eyes, my this, my that. I, I thought it was my assailant coming back to kill me. I wouldn't let her touch me because I thought she had a knife and she was going to kill me. My next real coherent thought after the fact that I just want to be with my wife was sitting in hospital and feeling like I was on fire, physically on fire. Now, I kind of was because I was covered head to toe in pepper spray. Normally, they would save your clothes if they could. Um, mine were just too saturated in pepper spray for people to even deal with. So my clothes were thrown out, put in a plastic bag and chucked out because they were just, nobody could touch them without getting pepper spray on their hands, their eyes, their whatever. So I'm on fire. I'm burning. And you've got to think, I'm still in this psychotic state. So when I start burning, I'm getting paranoid. I'm getting fearful again. And this cop, Kelly, this amazing police person, policewoman, sat beside me telling me that it was going to be okay. I hadn't hurt anybody. I'm not going to jail. She went and got a towel, soaked it in water, started wiping me down, trying to get some of the pepper spray off me. I don't know why she did that. But I can tell you it made all the difference in that moment. This officer just saying, it's going to be okay. I'm here to help you and I'm going to help you. I've never been able to find Kelly and it took me a long time before I could look for her. Uh, years, in fact. And then when I was able to fully understand what had happened to me in that event and understand the impact that she had, I realized on that night that she saved my life. 
this cop that found a psychotic man in the middle of the night, drug-addled with a weapon. And the last act that I remember of her from that night is wiping me down with a towel because I was, I was burning with the pepper spray. What kind of police officer does that? What kind of police officer has that much care for somebody that they were called out to a person on their worst possible night? They're able to see through the pain and the anguish. And they're able to just care. I don't know if I'll ever get to meet Kelly. I hope I do. I was speaking to a bunch of officers the other day, cadets, and I said something to them. I said a lot of things to them. But I said, you're going to meet some good people on their worst possible night. How you respond can and will be life-altering. I share everybody's kind of disdain for the lights in the back of your mirror. Holy crap, am I getting a ticket? But Kelly showed me what a police officer could be. Not only a person that will protect me if I'm in danger, will get justice for me if I'm hurt, but will use her skill, her maturity, her empathy to care for an essentially good person on their worst possible day. Kelly saved my life. And on my worst possible day, this officer is the one very, very bright light in a night that is still covered in shame, is covered in terror, covered in fear, blackness. This officer is a bright and shining light on that terrible, terrible night And I can never, ever thank her enough for saving me in my worst possible moment. I do hope that you will subscribe to STP Shattered, the podcast. Uh, Marriage and Mental Illness comes out every Wednesday. Today has been tough. This has been a hard story for me to tell. And I want to thank you for listening to it. Have a great day, everybody. I'll speak to you next week. Bye for now.
Thank you for listening to Shattered, the podcast. I'd like to thank our producer, Meredith Brosnan, our executive producer, Torian Lau, and the band Adelaide for allowing us to use their song as our theme. Go to shatteredthepodcast.com for more information.